Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. All right. Well, in chapter 9, the writer of Hebrews here is going to describe to us the tabernacle and the services that the priests performed under the first covenant. And he's going to point out to us its limitations. And then in the second part of the chapter, he's going to show us how the new covenant far surpasses any limitations that the first covenant had. So we're going to take a look at that. Verse 1 of Hebrews chapter 9. Then indeed, even the first covenant had ordinances of divine service and the earthly sanctuary. For a tabernacle was prepared, the first part in which was the lampstand, the table, and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. And behind the second veil, the part of the temple, which is called the holiest of all, which had the golden censer and the Ark of the Covenant overlaid on all sides with gold, in which were the golden pot that had the manna. Aaron's rod that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of of these things we cannot now speak in detail. Now when these things had been thus prepared, the priests always went into the first part of the tabernacle, performing the services. But into the second part of the, the priests, the high priest, excuse me, went alone once a year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the people's sins committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit indicating this, that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was still standing. It was symbolic for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regard to the conscience. Concerned only with foods and drinks, various washings, and fleshly ordinances imposed until the time of the Reformation. We'll stop right there. So the first covenant had an earthly sanctuary and ordinances of divine services associated with it. And the writer in this chapter is referring, I believe, more to the tabernacle that Moses built uh, before the Lord in the wilderness than to Solomon's temple, because Solomon's temple was was a little bit different. It, it had different things, uh, you know, that it had porticos and, and all kinds of different uh, aspects to it, as well as Zerubbabel's temple, uh, the temple that was built uh, after the exiles came out from Babylon that Herod later renovated. So I think this is specifically speaking of the tabernacle that Moses erected in the wilderness. And uh, remember back in chapter 8, verse 5, that we were told that everything of the first covenant was a copy and a shadow of the new covenant, of the things in heaven. And uh, so in verse 2, he says, For a tabernacle was prepared, the first part in which was the lampstand, the table, and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. Uh, so February, or excuse me, Exodus chapter 26, <laughs> February, it's not a book in the Bible. I don't know where it came from. <laughs> Turn in your Bibles to February 26. No, I'm just kidding. I don't know where that came from, really. All right. <laughs> and I got enough sleep last night, too. I wasn't up at 2 in the morning like some people. That's right. Exodus chapter 20, 26 describes the construction of the tabernacle. And uh, it was covered with goat's hair. 
and over that it was covered with ram skins dyed red, and over that it was covered with badger skins. Now from the outside, it, you know, it looked basically like any other tabernacle or any other tent in the wilderness. The, the, it, it was hard to distinguish it between the, the uh, tents that the children of Israel themselves lived in during that time. And yet, it was called the sanctuary of the whole, or the holy place. Why? Because of what was inside. And the tabernacle itself was a shadow of Jesus you think of it, on the surface, Jesus looked like any other Jewish man of his day. And when Jesus was in uh, the teaching in the synagogue in Nazareth, uh, you know, the Jews, they, they, they listened to him teaching, and they're like, you know, he's just an ordinary person. In fact, in Mark 6, 3, it says, Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, Joseph, uh, Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters with, here with him? And they were offended at him. They're like, you're just an ordinary guy, and you're, you're talking like you're God. In fact, in Jerusalem, the Jews accused him of blasphemy. In John ten thirty three, says the Jews answered him, saying, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself out uh, God. Make yourself a God. Excuse me, make yourself God. So on the outside, Jesus just looked like any other human being. He didn't, you know, we've got these pictures, these paintings where usually there's a glow and there's a little halo above Jesus. You know, he didn't walk around. He, you couldn't discern if you didn't hear him or you didn't know him. You couldn't discern that he was the son of God just by looking at him. Well, on the outside, the tabernacle looked like an ordinary tent, but inside it was the holy place where God would meet with his people. And Jesus looked like an ordinary man, but because he was also the holy son of God, through him, just like through the tabernacle, is how God meets with his people. And so inside the tabernacle, the writer describes to us, in the holy place, three items are listed. The lampstand, the table of showbread, and the showbread itself. The showbread, they were 12 loaves of freshly baked bread, each loaf representing one of the 12 tribes of Israel, and they were always there in the presence of the Lord. And it represented to Israel the fellowship God had with the 12 tribes of Israel. The showbread is a shadow of your and my unbroken fellowship with God through Christ. Now, under the Old Covenant, that showbread would be replaced every Sabbath uh, with freshly baked bread. And our fellowship with God always needs to be fresh and not stale. You know, He's worthy of our first. He's worthy of our best. He's not worthy of our dry, old, crusty bread, you know. He gets the fresh stuff. You know, sometimes in our, in our relationships with the Lord, we kind of grow hard, we kind of grow dry, we kind of grow stale. God's worthy of the fresh, of the best, of the first. Well, the showbread sat in two rows of six loaves on the table of showbread. And the table was made out of pure gold. It had a gold crown around the top edge. And inside of that was another crown that was a handbreadth high. So it had, an, it had a crown and then another crown. Again, a picture of Jesus. Jesus wore two crowns. First, he wore a crown of thorns. Now he's wearing the victor's crown of gold in heaven. 
the crown around the table of showbread also served a very practical purpose. You know, the, the tabernacle is a very portable thing, and it served a practice or the purpose of uh, keeping the bread from falling off of the table of showbread. In John 10, 28, Jesus says, And I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. The Apostle Jude ends his epistle with these words, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy to God our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. Jesus Christ is able to keep you and I from falling, from stumbling. Again, the third, excuse me, the third thing mentioned in the holy place was the golden lampstand. And it was solid gold, but it was hammered into the shape of this lampstand. It was known as the menorah. And it was lit every evening, and its wicks were dressed every morning. And it burned with the purest of olive oil. And it had a center stem, and then six branches that resembled olive branches came out. They protruded from the center of the stem and came up on the, on the sides, three on each side of the center stem. And it provided light in the tabernacle. Again, another picture of Jesus. The Apostle John tells us Jesus is the true light, which gives light to every man coming into the world. He's the light. Well, you know what's interesting is Jesus also, and we talked about this on, uh, on our Wednesday night Bible study in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus said to his disciples, you are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Not only is he the light of the world, but he says his followers, you and I as Christians, we're the light of the world as well. But we only shine as we're attached to and receive our oil from that center stem of the lampstand. In John fifteen five, Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. It's only as you and I abide in that vine that we are lights to the world around us. Well, in verse 3 it says, And behind the second veil, the part of the tabernacle which is called the holiest of all, which had the golden censer and the Ark of the Covenant overlaid on all sides with gold, in which were the golden pot that had the manna, Aaron's rod that budded, and the tablets of the covenant, and above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. You know, in the holy place... There was a a veil that was hung, and behind that veil was the holiest of all. It was another portion of the tabernacle. It's also known in the Bible as the Holy of Holies. And the writer here is describing what was behind the veil in the holiest of all, or in the Holy of Holies, in the tabernacle. First, he mentions the golden censer. Now, it's interesting, because in the Old Testament... The golden censer, it was described as being on the other side of the veil in the holy place, not in the holy of holies. And so people look at it and go, well, what's the deal with that? Is there a contradiction in scriptures? Well, some people interpret this to be the altar of incense. And others say, no, it's the golden censer, which was a fire pan, basically, uh, that was used to bring fire into the holy of holies to burn incense on the Lord, uh, burn incense Uh, before the Lord uh, on the Day of Atonement. If, in fact, 
it was the golden censer, and it was only used once a year. It's possible that they just left it inside, just underneath the veil in the Holy of Holies the rest of the year, so it wasn't used for anything other than just the, the Day of Atonement. That's what some, of the, some people think. Um, you know, I guess I don't really know, but even in that supposed discrepancy, you know, is it supposed to be here? Is it supposed to be there? How come, you know, in the Old Testament says it's here, but now the writer in the New Testament says it was in the holy place? Uh, I, think, I think I see a picture even in that discrepancy. Because the, the, remember what the altar of incense was for. Even the golden pan, the golden censer. It was for burning incense. And the incense is a picture of prayers and intercession rising up before the Lord. And, you know, it's sometimes uh, there's really kind of a right way to pray, right? There's like, you know, you, you, you thank the Lord, you confess your sins, and then you ask Him things. You know, there's kind of a format to follow. Uh, but, you know, my prayers aren't always like that. They're not always in the right place. My prayers sometimes are just, Lord, help me. And you know what? God's gracious, and God hears our prayers. He doesn't wait, wait, you didn't say it right. You didn't say your prayers right. You know, you didn't say, Heavenly Father, you know, give us a day. You know, you didn't follow the format. He doesn't say, he just, he hears the prayers of his people. That is a relief to me. That I don't have to say it just right. God knows my heart. And he hears your heart. The Lord hears the prayers of his people, whether they say it just right or not. He knows what you're saying. He knows, he knows you. Well, the next article mentioned is the Ark of the Covenant, and that was basically a box constructed of acacia wood, and it was covered in gold. Again, everything here is a picture of Christ, and the Ark is no different. It was a a wooden box, and wood speaks of Christ's humanity, and yet it was covered with gold, which speaks of Christ's deity. And inside that Ark was the golden pot that had the manna in it, reminding the children of Israel of God's faithfulness and providing for them all those 40 years in the wilderness and how they depended on Him for everything, for their sustenance. Well, that golden pot of manna also is a copy and a shadow of Christ. You know, the name manna, do you know where it came from? It's the Hebrew name. They saw this bread that came on on the ground in the heaven and, and on the ground in the wilderness, and they basically said, "What is it?" And that's the Hebrew word manna. That's what they named it. It's like, what is this stuff? Well, so too with Jesus, people didn't understand who he was. And Jesus said in John six forty eight, he said, "I am the bread of life." Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which comes down from heaven that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. And they looked at him and they said, What is he talking about? What is it? (laughs) Manna. (laughs) Maybe he even said that. Manna. (laughs) When they saw him. Well, in addition to the golden pot with the manna in it, in the Ark of the Covenant was also Aaron's rod that budded. Now, if you know the story of that, Aaron and his sons were appointed by God to be the high priests of Israel among the tribes of Levi. But there were other other people in the tribe of Levi. There were other families of the Levites that challenged his authority. Did God really choose you, basically? 
And God showed that Aaron was his chosen one by causing Aaron's rod to not only bud, but also to have blossoms on it and even to have mature fruit on it all at the same time. And it was basically just a dry, dead stick. And yet it produced fruit. And just as Aaron's priesthood was confirmed with the blossoming, budding, and living fruit on Aaron's dead and dried rod, so Jesus, again a picture, Jesus' priesthood was confirmed by his death and his resurrection to life. Now the Ark of the Covenant also contained the tablets of the, ten, of the covenant, which we know is the Ten Commandments. And that was a reminder to Israel of God's holiness and man's inability to meet God's righteous requirement. Jesus, not being only fully man, but also fully God, is the only one who's forever able to keep God's commandments perfectly. And so it pointed to Him. Above the Ark of the Covenant, there was a cover, and it was made of pure gold, and it had two angels on either side, known as cherubim. If you read in your Bible, it says cherubim. That's basically two angels. And they were on each side of this cover. This cover is known as the mercy seat. That was where God would meet with His people. Leviticus 16.14 tells us that blood would be sprinkled on this mercy seat. Well, this mercy seat is also a foreshadowing of Jesus Christ. In John's Gospel, on Easter Sunday, Mary Magdalene, she comes down to the empty tomb and she looks inside and where Jesus' bloodied and battered body lay on that, that slab, the body was gone, but there were two angels sitting on either side where the body had been. A beautiful picture of the mercy seat right there. Jesus is where you and I encountered God's mercy. Well, verse 6, he continues, he said, Now when these things have been thus prepared, the priests always went into the first part of the tabernacle performing the services. But into the second part, the high priest went alone once a year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the people's sins committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit indicating this, that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was still standing. It was symbolic for the present time, in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regard to the conscience, concerned only with foods and drinks, various washings, and fleshly ordinances imposed until the time of the Reformation. The priests would minister daily in the holy place. But only once a year, the high priest would enter into the holiest of all, the holy of holies. And that was on the Day of Atonement. And the high priest never entered there without blood. Entering the holy of holies, it was not for fellowship. It was to atone for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. You see, under the Old Covenant... The sins that you knowingly committed. You know, I knowingly stole from someone, or I, or I lied, or I cheated, or, I, or I, I hurt someone, or I hated someone. The things that I knowingly did, those sins were willful sins. They're transgressions. They're, those were dealt with during the daily sacrifices for sin offerings. Those were dealt with on a daily basis. But there are sins that we unknowingly commit, and these are the sins of ignorance. At the time you committed it, you didn't know it was a sin, but then it was revealed to you later. You were in sin. I, you know, I, all of you probably know I ride a motorcycle. 
And uh, Minnesota does not have a helmet law, but California does. When I lived in California, you had to wear a helmet. And so I wore a helmet in California, and I, I usually wear a helmet here in Minnesota. But, you know, one year I decided to ride from Minnesota to California. And uh, if I chose to ride through all these different states, there's like seven states you go through to get to California. And if you, you know, if I just said, you know what, I don't have to wear a helmet in Minnesota, so I'm just going to ride. And you just get on your bike and ride. And, and I get pulled over in, say, Utah. And I don't know if Utah's got a helmet law or not, but I, I get pulled over in Utah, and they say, hey, where's your helmet? And I go, well, I didn't know I, I, didn't know I needed to wear a helmet. You think they're going to let me get it going? They're going to let me off? No, they need their revenue. <laughs> they're going to say, they're going to say, hey, you're guilty. Uh, well, but I didn't know. That doesn't matter. The law is the law. You broke the law. It was your responsibility to know. You didn't know, but you broke the law. That was a sin. Well, in this case, it was a law that I broke in ignorance, but I still broke the law. And there's sins that you and I have broken that we didn't realize was sin. But there's still sin. This is sins done in ignorance. And the Day of Atonement was to cover the sins that one committed in ignorance throughout the year. And the high priest, being just a man, offered a blood sacrifice not only for the sins of the people, but for his own sin committed in ignorance. And I love how the, Holy, uh, the, the writer says that the Holy Spirit used this copy and shadow in the Day of Atonement to show that under the first covenant, the way into the Holy of Holies, that place where God met with man was not accessible under the old covenant because you yourself couldn't go in there. It was a priest that went in for you and only once a year. And here is the first limitation mentioned. Sacrifices in the Old Testament only covered the sins committed either intentionally or unintentionally. Under the old covenant, when I sinned, especially when I willfully sinned, you guys know what I'm talking about because you've willfully sinned too. Or you've known that God says, You're, thou shalt not do this, and you go, you know what, I want to do it. And you, you transgress God's commands. Well, when I sin and I choose to, to rebel and commit that sin, I have a guilty conscience. I know that I did sin. And now I take this innocent animal that knows nothing of right and wrong and I slit its throat and I take its life from it and drain its blood from it and offer it as a sacrifice. I still know what I did and my guilt remains. Deep down in man's conscience under the old covenant, there was this awareness that the animal sacrifice it only covered the sin. It didn't remove it. I still felt guilty. And I would still be afraid of God's wrath. I still had a guilty conscience because the animal sacrifice could do nothing to transform a man's heart. Verse 11, he says, But Christ came as high priest of the good things to come, with the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands, that is not of this creation, not with the blood of, of goats and calves, but with his own blood he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And for this reason he is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death. For, un, for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant, that those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. 
Jesus is a better tabernacle. He was not made with hands. In other words, He was not of this creation. This is why it's so fundamental, I think, to believe and to, and, and to hold to the truth of Christ's virgin birth. You know, Jesus was born of a woman, and that made Him fully man, but He was conceived of the Holy Spirit, and that, that enabled Him to retain His full deity. And if you get rid of that, of that doctrine, of that truth, well, then it kind, of, it kind of destroys who Jesus is. So it's very fundamental belief to understand and to know that Jesus was born uh, of a virgin. Well, under the old covenant, you would go to the priest who would offer the sacrifice for you. And you know, later on, you know, you, you bring your sacrificial animal to the priest and then they'd sacrifice it for you. Uh, you know, in the book of Malachi, God started rebuking his people because instead of giving him the best, the, 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 the spotless, unblemished you know, animals to sacrifice to God, they were accused by God of just basically giving them what was left over. You know, it's like, oh, this this lamb, it's got a, you know, it's got a, it's got a limp. I don't think it's going to make it too much longer. I'll sacrifice that to God. And people started doing that, and God rebuked the people for doing that. You know, it's sad today, but even today, people tend to do that ourselves. You know, we tend to offer God, you know, basically the leftovers. Leftovers of our time, leftovers of our talent, leftovers of our of our of our treasures, whatever. It's usually whatever's left over, whatever, you know, I don't have any more value in this, I'll give it to the church. <laughs> you know? I, I I felt really bad about that one time. I, I uh donated a van to the church and, and uh, not to the church to a, to an individual and I and I, it was, you know, because the thing was breaking down basically, and I just like, man, I just I'll give it to this guy. He's a mechanic, and I gave it to the guy. And and uh, at the same time, I had this other van that was in nice shape, and I, I you know, I thought, well, I just kind of just gave him the junky one. I could have really blessed him and gave him the good one and kept the junky one, but you guys know what I'm talking about because we all do that, right? Not with vans necessarily, but. Uh, but we're to give the Lord our best. Jesus is not only the high priest, but he's the sacrifice himself. The wages of sin is death, and we know that. But it's not the death of an animal, it's the death of a sinner, the death of a man. And so Jesus is a better sacrifice because not only was he fully man, but because he was fully God and without sin, he's the best, in fact, the only perfect sacrifice for sin. And if you think about this, a sacrificial animal had no concept of paying for a person's sin. In fact, they didn't volunteer to die in your place. They would have to hold them and, and, and sacrifice them. Well, Jesus is a better sacrifice because he knowingly and willingly and in love gave himself for your and my sin. Verse 13 says, For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? 
Now, when he talks about the ashes of a heifer here, he's referring to the requirement under the Old Covenant to take a red heifer and to offer it as a burnt offering and then to take its ashes and they would keep its ashes and they would use the ashes of the red heifer. They would add it to water to make this holy water that they would use for ritual cleansing in the temple. Very interesting, but today... In this day and age, there are Orthodox Jews in Israel today who are trying to breed a red heifer. It's a very rare thing. They're trying to breed a red heifer so that they can have ashes of a red heifer that they can use to ceremonially cleanse the new temple that they want to build in Israel. It's a very real thing here. Well... What he is saying here is how infinitely more powerful is the blood of Jesus Christ to not only cleanse us of our sins, but even to cleanse our consciences of our, and I like to translate it this way, our works that bring death. Of course, dead works could also refer to what the writer was trying to warn the Hebrews about. They were trying to return to Judaism. And it's like, it's it's a dead work what you're doing. But the blood of Jesus Christ is able to cleanse your and my conscience as well. And then he says there in verse 15, And for this reason he is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant, that those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. And in verse 16 it says, For where there is a testament, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. For a testament is in force, after men are dead, since it has no power at all while the testator lives. Therefore, not even the first covenant was dedicated without blood. For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and goats with water, scarlet wool, and hyssop, and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you. Then likewise he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry. And according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood, and without shedding of blood there is no remission. What he's referring to in verses 15 through 17 is the concept of a last will and a testament. Now, if, and I haven't done it yet, but if I had made out a will for my children, you know, I have certain things I want to give to my children. I've got four kids, so uh, I've, this ring was passed on from my dad, so I would give this to one of my children. Um, I've got this beautiful watch. I'd probably will this to one of my other children. Um, I'd probably will my motorcycle to one of the children, and Luke gets the pulpit. <laughs> so, <laughs> Or my old hair comb. You know, i got this cool comb. No, I'm just kidding. But, you know, they can't claim any of those things until after my death. You know, that, that will, what I want to give to all of my children, it's just a piece of paper while I'm still alive. It says, when I die, this is what I want. I mean, there's no, there's no force. There's no, it's not a legal document until I die. And then it goes into force. Well, the new covenant or the new testament only came into force when the testator died. And Jesus is the testator who, with his death, put the New Testament into force. And Jesus is not only the testator, but he's also the mediator, or the arbitrator, or the executor, or if you might think the lawyer who's there executing the will. And so the writer says, even the Old Testament, or the Old Covenant, was not in force until something died. Even that Old Covenant 
was just nothing until something died. And under the old covenant, in that case, it was the death of an animal. And so Moses would take the blood of the animals when he established, when he built the tabernacle, when he, when he had the Ten Commandments and he read the, the covenant to the, to the children of Israel, he took the blood of animals that were sacrificed along with water, scarlet wool and hyssop, and he sprinkled it on the tabernacle, he sprinkled it on the book of the covenant, and he even sprinkled it on the people that were standing around him as he was inaugurating the old covenant. Even these things pointed to Christ's sacrifice. Of course, the scarlet wool, the picture, the color of blood. The hyssop, you know, a branch of the hyssop if you go all the way back to Exodus, the branch of hyssop was dipped uh, in blood and it was used to paint the doorposts on the very first Passover. And as Jesus was dying on the cross, they dipped a sponge in sour wine and the sour wine was basically to numb his senses, to dull his senses so he wouldn't, it would kind of like take, take the, the edge off of the pain that he was suffering. And so they dipped it, uh, a sponge in this sour wine, and they put it on a hyssop branch, and they offered it to Jesus, and he refused to drink it because he wanted to bear your, the suffering completely, un, un, you know, anesthetized in any way because he took the full force of your and my sin upon himself. Uh, just a, a picture of Jesus we see here. In verse 22, he says, And according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood. And without shedding of blood, there is no remission. Remission, that's not a word we use too often, but it means forgiveness or pardon of sins, letting them go as if they had never been committed. Remission of the penalty. You see, under the Old Covenant, every year there was a sacrifice. Every day there's the sacrifices going on in the temple. And once a year was that day of atonement. And so you always were aware of the fact that you sinned. It was, it was always there. It was, it was present there all the time. But under the new covenant with Jesus Christ, it's washed away. Our sins are completely removed from us. Verse 23, Therefore it was necessary that the copies of the things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Not that he should offer himself often as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with the blood of another. He would then have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now once at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself." And as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this the judgment, so Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly await for him, he will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. Jesus Christ is better in every way than anything under the Old Testament or under the Old Covenant. And he's, the writer is saying here, Jesus unlike the Old Covenant, doesn't have to offer himself often. Because the high priest, once a year, those sacrifices were offered on the Day of Atonement. Jesus offered himself once and for all. And there are churches out there that teach that Jesus is suffering every time the Mass is conducted. He's suffering all over again, but that's not what Scripture teaches. Jesus suffered once and for all, not to suffer again. 
Jesus has completed his sacrifice at Calvary once and for all, at the end of the ages. Verse 27, it says, And as it is appointed for men to die once, but after that, uh, but after this, the judgment. You know, this verse alone puts to rest the idea of reincarnation. Yeah, I mean, this verse alone just squashes that whole concept of living multiple lives. Men live their lives, they die once, and after this comes the judgment. And if you look through the Bible, when Jesus was on the Mount of Transfiguration, Moses and Elijah appeared with him on the mountain. They still existed, and they appeared with Jesus there on the Mount of Transfiguration. In Matthew 12, Jesus said the men of Nineveh would rise up in judgment of that generation. Those men of Nineveh, they still exist. The queen of Sheba would rise up in judgment of that generation. She still exists. All these people still exist. No one comes back as someone else or as a bug or anything. They still exist. Now, for you and I as believers, that should also be a great comfort for us because your grandparents, your parents, your great-grandparents, your loved ones, any of those who had a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, they are alive, and you will see them again. You know, you and I as believers, what a, what a blessed hope that is to give us comfort in the loss of loved ones. We're going to see them again. It comforts us in our grief. Verse 27, it says, And as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this the judgment, so Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly await for Him, He will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. Jesus was offered up once. He bore your and my sin once. He's not going to return to bear a cross wearing a crown of thorns. He's going to return again wearing a crown, a gold crown, and He's going to come to take you and I back to that mansion that He's been preparing for us for over 2,000 years. That alone should excite you and I as we read that this morning. And I hope you're encouraged this morning. Uh, From this point, we're going to have communion this morning. So Luke, you want to...